Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. That's Matthew 5, verses 17 through 20. Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, Jesus is heading into the next section of his sermon where he'll be showing his hearers that God's law goes way deeper than just an outward appearance of keeping it. And that's what we're going to see is he's about to he's going to be doing so in the verses to come, which we'll get to one of those sections tonight, Lord willing. He's going to be doing so by saying, you have heard that it was said in quoting the law. He'll be quoting the law. And then he's going to say, but then he's going to go on and say, but I say. And so he has the right to do this. He's about to show them that the law of God is in force, if you will. It's, it's not going to pass away until, well, it said heaven and earth aren't going to pass away until everything's been accomplished. As you've heard me reference recently, there's been a move in some circles of Christendom to uh, unhitch the church from the Old Testament. And the, the, a lot of New Testament teachers are just focusing on the New Testament. Jesus himself said that the law is going to be enforced. The law is important. And so we're going to talk about that, though, because we're going to get into a topic tonight that's kind of deep about the fact that the law is still enforced. Yet at the same time, we're not under law, but under grace and all these types of things. So I pray that God will give you a little bit of insight tonight. So as Jesus moves into this part of his sermon, he's going to be taking them deeper into the law. And in doing so, he's going to quote pieces of the law. But then he's going to go on and say, but I say. Now, we all know the Bible's real clear about adding to the Word of God. How come Jesus has the right to add to it? Because He is the Word. Exactly. He wrote it. He is the Word. In John chapter 1, you all know it very well. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And in verse 14, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. In John chapter 17, 17, Jesus prays in the garden right before the cross, Father, sanctify them by Your truth. Your word is truth. And we all know in John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The reason why Jesus can say, but I say, is because he is the word. He's the living word of God. And so that's a very important thing. But in these verses, Jesus is making clear that in clarifying the law, he's not changing it or doing away with it. Look again at verses 17 and 18. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, not will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And then he goes on and gives a warning. He says, if anybody relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, they're going to be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. We as Christians love to quote that we're not under law, but under grace, which is very true. But unfortunately, a lot of Christians think that mean that we don't have to worry about what the law's requirements are. Don't think for a second that means we can freely break God's law and suffer no consequences. Now, again, we're not talking about losing your salvation or going to hell if you're a true believer in God through faith in Jesus Christ. But let me just take you to a few scriptures that warn and caution us about not taking this freedom that we've been given in Christ, where we're under grace and not under the law, to an extreme that allows or thinks that it allows you to do whatever you want and there'll be no consequences. I actually have had people uh, recently, actually, I'll be honest with you, there, there are people that have come to this Bible study who have stopped coming to this Bible study because they asked me this question. They said, do you think a believer can still sin? And I said, yes, the Bible says Christians still sin and showed them the passages. But this person said, I can't listen to you teach anymore because you think Christians can still sin. There's nothing I can learn from you. And they've stopped coming to this Bible study because of it. Where the Bible actually says, my dear children, John says in 1 John, I write to you that you don't sin. But if we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father. In that same passage, John says, anyone says he doesn't sin, he lies, and the truth's not in him. The Bible's very clear that even when we've been forgiven of sin, we still struggle with sin. 
And this is that wrestling match and we're going to get into tonight. So don't be led astray into the teaching that says since we've been set free from sin or set free from the law, that we can just live however we want. Go to Galatians chapter 5. We have definitely been set free from the damnation of the law, but we've also been set free, if we choose to live in it by faith, from the power. And we'll talk about that kind of stuff in a little bit. Galatians chapter 5, look at verses 13 through 15. Paul says, For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. Again, he says, yeah, you have been set free from the demands of the law. Yet at the same time, don't assume that means you're free to do whatever you want. There's, nothing, there's no such thing as sin in your life. If you act like that, there's going to be consequences. And it could just be relationally even. Go to 1 Peter chapter 2. Look at verse 16. 1 Peter 2 verse 16. First Peter 2 verse 16 says, Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Again, we're going to get into this tonight. We're free. We've been set free from the law. And we're no longer under the law, but under grace. But that doesn't mean we're free to do whatever we want. The law and the demands of the law are still there. We're going to talk about that. Go to one more passage. Go to the book of Jude and look at verses 3 and 4. Jude, verses 3 and 4. Jude says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. There were those that were coming in and teaching the truth of the gospel and the fact that when we are set free from sin through faith in Jesus Christ, we are actually set free from the law. And therefore, they took that truth and they then extended it into an unbiblical realm of saying, you can live however you want. A big part of Gnosticism was the fact that they were teaching that the flesh was one thing and the spirit was another. And since we are now made alive in our spirit, our bodies, which are still flesh and under the curse, you could do whatever you want in your body because it had no touch or effect on your spirit. And there were those who were teaching that type of freedom. And the Bible says that's not the case. Jesus himself said, if anybody relaxes these commands, watch out. Don't listen to those kind of people. All right. Now. We have been set free from the condemnation of the law, since as you are going to see, it demands perfection. But through faith in Jesus Christ, the one, the only one, who perfectly kept the law, we have met all the righteous requirements of the law. Go to Romans chapter 8. Let me show you what I'm, I'm going to start laying out for you here. Go to Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. <clears throat> Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. Paul says, there therefore is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So here we see that with those of us who are in Christ have been set free from the condemnation that the law brings. The law brings a judgment and it condemns us, but we've been set free from that because the righteous requirements of the law have been met by who? By Jesus. And if we are in Christ, we're covered by him, if you will. Through his blood and through faith in him, we are considered by God as righteous, not because of what we do, but because of Jesus. Now, at the same time, look closely at what verse 3 says. It says, For God has done 
what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Does anybody understand what he's talking about? Well, God, God has done what the law couldn't accomplish. As you're going to see, God's purpose for sending the law was to reveal the fact that we couldn't keep it. That's the whole purpose of the law. It was to open our eyes to the fact that you need a Savior. Paul actually in Romans 7, we won't take the time to go there. Paul in Romans 7 has just gone on and said, I didn't even know what coveting was until the law said don't covet. And then everything in me all of a sudden wanted to covet. It, it, the law is holy. He said, was the law bad then? No, the law is holy and it's good. Yet what it did because of the sin in me, it, it invigorated, if you will, my sin. It charged it. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 56, the Bible says the power of sin is the law. The power of sin. In other words, what fuels sin is the law. In other words, as you've heard me say before, many of you would be walking down the sidewalk, would never even think about stepping foot on the neighbor's grass. But if they put a sign that says, do not stop, step on my grass, everything in you now goes to go, oh yeah, look what I just did. So at the same time, the law was, been, it was just simply brought to reveal it. In Romans chapter 5, verse 20, the scripture says that the law was added so that the trespass would increase. Isn't that crazy? If you ask most people today, does God want non-Christians to sin more or sin less? And we'd say, oh, he wants them to sin less. Actually, no. The Bible says God wants unbelievers to sin more, but then they'll realize they're sinners. The law was added so that the trespass would increase. See, the Bible actually, and again, I'm covering a lot of passages without turning to them because of where we need to go tonight. The Bible actually taught in, in the book of Romans, as Paul's laying this all out, that the Bible says the soul that sins, it shall die. And Adam and Eve, they broke a command. God said, don't eat from this one tree. And they broke that command and therefore sinned. But there were no commands of God. If you look at the scriptures between Adam and Eve and until the time of Moses. But what happened to all the people who lived from the time of Adam and Eve until the time of Moses? They died. Well, the Bible says the soul that sins, it shall die. Well, the reason they died is, is they had sin. But the sin is not taken into account, the scripture says, when there's no law. Therefore, well, let me give you an illustration I've used in the past, and some of you might remember it, some of you might not. Years ago, when I was in New Orleans in seminary, we're talking 30-something years ago, me and my buddy James uh, would paint houses uh, to make money on the side. And he also had another job where he worked at a funeral home at night, where back in then, I don't know if it still is the, the case, but if there was a dead body in the funeral home, by law they couldn't leave the dead body unattended overnight. So they would hire seminary students to sit in the funeral home overnight. They, they loved it because they got paid and they could study while they're just sitting there, sitting up with the dead, if you will. All right. He, on the way back from work, had gotten a speeding ticket. And in New Orleans at that time, if you got a speeding ticket, they took your driver's license away and gave you a little pink slip of paper. You could still drive. But you didn't want to get a speeding ticket anymore until you got your speeding ticket taken care of. Because if you only had the piece of paper to hand in when you got pulled over, you were in really a lot of trouble. So that next day, after he had just gotten his license taken away, he comes, to, he comes and picks me up in his pickup truck. And we're driving to our painting job. And he says, I lost my license last night for speeding. Please help me keep an eye on my speedometer. I can't take a chance. So we're driving down this road. It was a of suburban area there, and we saw a police officer clocking people up ahead. He said, check my speedometer. I'm going 35, right? I go, yep, you're going 35. We go the speed limit. Go by the police officer. Woo! He turns the lights on, pulls us over. The officer comes up, and James says, uh, sir, I was going 35, and I have a witness here that is, can testify that I was going 35. I said, sir, I was watching his speedometer. He was going 35. He said, good, I had you at 33, but this is a school zone. <laughs> we thought we were okay until the law revealed we weren't. Do you understand? There's a whole world full of people that think they're okay, don't they? There's a world full of people that you'd ask them if they died today, would they go to heaven? Yeah, I think I'm all right. I think God's going to weigh my good and my bad and I'm going to be okay. The law has now been given to reveal you're not as okay as you think. The problem is that the Jewish religious leaders had been teaching 
the law in the wrong way. They were teaching that man could keep the law if they were as righteous as the Pharisees. And they taught everybody how to focus on the righteous, well, let's say the letter of the law, but not the heart of the law. Jesus is now going to blow that all up in the next section we're going to be getting into. And he's setting the stage and he says, please don't think that I have come to abolish the law or to get rid of it. I'm actually here to fulfill it. That's very important that he says that. I'm here to fulfill it. Now, before we go into any more on this line, let me just share with you a couple of quick scriptures that will hopefully settle in your heart, something you already know, but it's valuable to have in case anybody wants to ask you about it. If I were to ask you, did Jesus ever sin? What would you say? You're correct. But could you tell me where in the world the Bible says he never sinned? 1 Corinthians 5.21, go ahead. Very good. We're going to go to that one. We have, well, let's, go to, let's go to the one that you just pulled out, Bill. Go to Hebrews chapter 4. I'm going to give you a bunch real quick, so pull your pencils out. Hebrews chapter 4, look at verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Go to um, 1 Peter chapter 2. We're over here in Hebrews. Just jump over to 1 Peter chapter 2. Look at verse 22. Can't be any clearer than this one. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Go to John chapter 8. Look at verse 46. Jesus said, which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? And then even after all those people had tried him there in that sham of a trial, were they able to find anything against him? No. And even what they accused him of, they even knew was a lie. But there's also one more passage I want to share with you. It's in John again. Look at chapter 14, verse 30. A very interesting statement that Jesus makes along this line. John chapter 14, verse 30. This is right before the cross. Jesus says to his disciples, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. He has no claim on me. He can't touch me. By the way, what did the Bible say happened to each of us when we sinned? We became children of the devil. Jesus said, God's not your father. Satan is your father. And he had a claim on us, didn't he? But because of the fact that Jesus came and did what we could not do, and he did what because of our sinful flesh the law could not do, he kept the law perfectly. And therefore, Satan had no claim on him. And if you and I are in Christ Jesus, guess what? He's got no claim on you either. He's got no claim on me because of Jesus. Exactly. The breastplate of righteousness. I love it. Now, unfortunately, though, a lot of people, when they hear the breastplate of righteousness, they think, well, I've lived pretty righteous. I've been doing pretty good. Folks, I hope you don't think for a second that it's how good you've been, even after salvation. We still struggle with that a little bit. I think we all do. We all still want to get some points for how good we've been. Our flesh wants some credit. Keep in mind, it's all him. I'm actually give you a little commercial for the message I'm going to be preaching on Sunday. I'm going to be preaching a message that's entitled, We Don't Need a Second Chance, We Need a Savior. You see, a lot of people think, if I just get another chance, I'll do better. And I'm going to show through history from the scriptures, looking at man, looking at nations, looking at whatever, that even if you got 100,000 second chances, you'd blow them all. You don't need a second chance. You need a Savior. I even myself for years, when I was a young preacher, used to think that salvation was a second chance. No, it wasn't. It had nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with him. 
I didn't get a second chance. I got a Savior. And that's where we're going to be going on Sunday, and I can't wait to go there. But keep me from preaching it now. Let's go back to where we're at. Folks, the law is still in force. And it's still accomplishing its purpose. Now, let me show you a couple of things that are interesting here. Go to Romans chapter 3. Look at verses 19 and 20. Romans chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. It says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes what? The knowledge of sin. What is the purpose of the law? To reveal sin, to, to reveal the problem that's already there. Like you've heard me say before, the MRI doesn't give you cancer. It reveals the cancer that's there. The law is like an MRI. You might think you're okay, but it's going to reveal what's really there. And that's what the law's purpose is. The law is, is everybody's going to be held accountable to it. But by the works of the law, no one's going to be justified because the whole purpose of the law is to reveal sin and to make people conscious of their sin. Now, go to um, 1 Timothy chapter 1. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, look at verses 8 through 11. Paul says, now we know that the law is good. He even said in Romans that it was holy. If one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, those who have been made righteous, but for who? For the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly and the sinners. And then he goes on, for the unholy, the profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I've been entrusted. Look what Paul said. He said, the law is good, but it's not been laid down for us. It's been laid down for us when we were lost. And its purpose was to show us our need of a Savior. But once we have entered into a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ, we no longer need to try to be pleasing to God by keeping the law. The righteous requirements of the law have already been met because of Jesus, and we're in Jesus. Now, does that mean that because I'm set free from the law, and it's not for me because I'm the just, that I can just do whatever I want? No, I'm in Christ. That's why when Paul said, shall we go on sinning so we can get more grace? By no means we died to that. So I, I honestly believe that if we would just preach the gospel for what it is and trust that God's able to get his word across and, and we wouldn't have, I think we've softened the gospel a little bit. Because we're afraid of someone saying, well, so you're saying that if someone's truly born again, that they're free from sin and they'll never be judged for sin ever again. Yes, that's what the Bible teaches. There's actually a wonderful old preacher named Les Feldekin. He says this. He says, if when you share the gospel, someone's question is not, so you're saying that once I'm saved, I can do whatever I want and I'll still go to heaven. He said, if you share the gospel and they don't ask that question, you haven't shared the gospel. Because the Bible is that true. That's what the gospel is. What they will understand in time is, for those of us who have truly been born again and sealed by the Spirit, you don't want to go back to that stuff. It says in 1 John chapter 3 and 1 John chapter 5, the one who's been born again does not continue practicing sin. Because the one who's in us is going to keep us from that. He'll be, he who began the good work will finish it. But we're so worried about people might be abusing the true gospel, we don't preach it. And so, folks, what we've done is we preached a little bit of gospel of God's grace and a little bit of, but you still got to be good. I don't want you to go down that road. I don't want you to hear me say that you're free to do whatever you want. But at the same time, you kind of are. But your wants are going to change if you've truly been born again. Your wants are going to change if you've truly been born again. And so we need to understand that when Jesus came and says, let me tell you what the law really says. He's not changing it. He's clarifying it so that we'd understand it. And that's where we're going to be going. Now, the purpose of the law, as we've said, is to reveal sin. And that's what Jesus is going to be doing in the following verses. Now, 
He wants his hearers who have been taught to keep the law in order to be righteous and have been fooled into thinking that their leaders could keep the law that neither they nor their leaders could do. He wants them to understand that if you're going to try to keep the law, the law demands perfection. Not do a pretty good job. You have to get a 100% or you get a zero. There's no grading on the curve. There's no 95. It's 100 or you get a zero. James chapter 2, verse 10, if you're able to keep the whole law, yet stumble at just one point, you're guilty as if you broke it all. That's why, look at Matthew chapter 5. Look at what he says in verse 20. For I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you were a Jew at that time, it had been taught that the, right, the Pharisees were the most righteous ones and they were doing a really good job and they're living in a way that I could never be like a Pharisee. I mean, these guys tithe on their mint and their cumin and they, they, they're careful not to do anything wrong and they do everything so well. And then Jesus says, if, unless your righteousness surpasses the righteousness of the Pharisees, you'll never get into heaven. What would be the automatic reaction of every Jew that day that heard that? What's the point? I give up. Good answer. That's what he's wanting them to realize. Give up trying to be righteous before God on your own. And that's why in verse, if you go down to Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, look at what he says there. At the end of all this section that we're going to be breaking down in the days to come, he says, you therefore must be what? Perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Now, I've got to be honest with you. It's weird for me. I understood that when it came to salvation, that I couldn't be perfect, that only Jesus can be perfect, and only Jesus is perfect, and I'm, per I'm holy because my Father's made me such. But then in 1 Peter, when he says, Be ye holy, for I'm holy, I tried myself after salvation for years to try to be holier. And I made myself miserable. And as some of you have heard my testimony in the past, I won't take the time to go there. It's been amazing to see the work that God's done in my heart to help me understand that I'm no longer under law, but under grace. Now, at the same time, I'm getting gooder and gooder, but not because I'm trying. Not because I'm trying, but because the one who began the good work is doing his work and he's finishing it and he's bringing it to fruition. He's renewing me in my spirit, which the Bible says he's going to be doing on a daily basis. He's the one who's making me more like Jesus. I've already been declared righteous. I'm already, the righteous requirements of the law have already been met, at, met in me because of Jesus. And I'm declared in the eyes of God as sinless. But even though I still struggle with sin, the one who saved me from sin, who lives within me, will give power to my body and give me victory over sin when I stop trying to help him. And that's been a wonderful, wonderful journey to see him do it. And I wish I trusted him more. I wish I trusted him more. Isn't that verse also really talk, taking it in context with what we said before? You know, Without love, question. You know, going back to loving your neighbor as yourself. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what reward is there in heaven if all I do is love the people that love me or love the people that are nice and easy to and as you're going to see it's tied to what he's going to be laying all out you think you're doing pretty good because you love the people that love you the law goes deeper than that the law says you need to love the people that hate you exactly and that so yes as you're going to see that those verses there are the conclusion of this section that we're about to get into but let me just point out a couple other things real quick, just so you see the scripture. I believe instead of me trying to explain it to you, as you know, I'm just going to bomb you with thousands of scriptures. Go to Galatians chapter 3. Look at verses 10 through 14. For all who rely on works, verse 10, Galatians chapter 3, verse 10, for all who rely on works of the law are under curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by what? Faith. faith. He quotes that from Hosea. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, 
so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. You want to be righteous before God? You have to be perfect. And you're under a curse because if you blew it yesterday, you're done for the rest of your life. You don't need a second chance. You need a Savior. I started preaching that sermon. I can't go there. Go to Galatians 5. You're in Galatians. Go to chapter 5. Look at verses 1 through 3. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify to, again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. Do you see that? See, the, 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 these people, Gentiles are being taught that, yeah, it's through faith in Jesus, but you still got to do a couple of things, too. you got to be circumcised. and you got there, There's a movement that's all around the country and parts of the world as well, and it's pretty strong in this area as well, especially in the area of Merritt Island, where there are people that are teaching that Christians need to keep the law of Moses still. And there's dietary restrictions and all these things. And they think that they're closer to God because they do these certain things. He goes, you want to try to become righteous by observing the law? you got to do it all. You can't pick and choose which parts you like and which parts you don't. You're under a curse if you think you can be good enough by doing well. And every one of us, every day, has to get up and lay our flesh on the altar. We have to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice and renew our minds, and live by the Spirit and not by the, by the flesh. And that's going to be a daily struggle that you're going to have. You might go and have an aha moment tonight and go, you know what, I think I grasped it finally. Well, good, you won't tomorrow. <laughs> you're going to have to renew your mind. God's designed it that we would rely on Him on a daily basis. That's why Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, So I say, walk in the Spirit, and you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. We look unto Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Yes, we're to lay aside the sin, but we do it by looking unto Jesus. But you're going to have to learn to do that on a daily basis. And so I pray that you understand as we go into what God says, what the heart of the law is, the good news for those of us, and I'll get right to you, the good news for those of us who are in Christ, as we look at what Jesus is about to do in his teaching, the good news is whew, it's going to show we're pretty messed up. <laughs> and thank God we're already declared righteous through faith in him. Yes, sir. Blessed are those who realize they're poor in spirit. We all are, <laughs> you know, but blessed are those who realize it. Yes. All right. So let's go to Matthew chapter five and let's start breaking it down a little bit at a time. And I don't think it's an accident that when Jesus starts to elucidate the law, I like that word. That one came out of nowhere. I think I don't think it's an accident that Jesus starts with anger. I think that's actually one of the biggest issues on the globe. And is it not manifesting itself all over the place? And unfortunately, it's manifesting itself even in the church. Look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 26. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Jesus now goes into detail in the rest of this whole chapter to point out that when God's law gave a command, the command was trying to reveal the heart of man, where the real problem is. All right, let me just show you a couple of scriptures that, that kind of clarify this for us. Go to Mark chapter 7. Again, if you remember, the Jews were being taught to look at the outward. Have you killed anybody? Well, I haven't killed anybody. Oh, then you're pretty good. Well, no, when the law said you shall not murder, let me take you a little bit deeper to what God's looking at. As you know, God told uh, Samuel, man looks on the outward appearance, God looks where? 
God looks on the heart. Go for it. What's your question? Uh, and it says, when he, the, fool in his heart, the fool in his heart says there is no God. Yes. Then it says, the, when you say the fool shall be in danger of hell fire. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're, you're telling him he's a fool because right. what's wrong with saying that? Well, let, let, me, let me clarify. And we're going to get to that later in the study, but I'll do the quick answer right now. Who said that that person's a fool? No, no, no. Who originally said that person's a God did. You know why? And you're going to see this. The reason why the Bible says we're not to call someone a fool is because God's the only one who has the true understanding of where that person really is. When we call someone a fool, we're setting ourselves up as a judge, but he knows what we don't know. So if God says that person's a fool, he can say that because he's a righteous judge in everything he does. There's nothing wrong with repeating. But remember, God says... You're a fool if you don't. You see what I'm saying? It's not, you're a fool then. No, be careful. Be careful. You see what I'm saying? That's where we're going to go. That's where we're going to get to in a little bit. But I'm glad you brought that out because I knew it was going to come up, but it came up quicker than I thought. Go to Mark chapter 7. Look at verses 14 through 23. And Jesus called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him, for from within out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from where? Within. And they defile a person. Let me ask you a question real quick. Um, does this not blow up those who say that people are wicked just because of their environment? Oh, that, the only person that people act like that is because they were raised in the slums and they were raised in a bad place. And that's where they look. No, no, no. The Bible is very clear. All this stuff comes from within us. By the way, for those of you that have ever asked me if I want coffee, I've always said the same thing. I always jokingly say, no thanks, I want to go to heaven. And they all get panicky, like, what? Drinking coffee makes me not? You know, I'm like, that's the whole point of the joke. Nothing outside of you will make you defiled. But I just don't drink coffee. All right? Jesus then says, look, you guys are still looking at what happened outside to make you clean or not clean. It's the heart. All this stuff that I'm going to be talking about, Jesus said, it's going to reveal where your heart really is, because that's the real issue. It's not what it looks like on the outside. If we're all honest, all of us, including Jim Johnson, there are things in our lives right now that we would not want anybody to know about us. And we're saved. But we're still wrestling with this flesh. All it's doing is revealing how much God has saved us from. And he's still working on those areas. And you can't say, well, I'm just human. That's the way it is. No, no, God says I'm dealing with that. And I'm going to keep dealing with those issues because I want to get and have what I've already given you be made manifest through you. But at the same time, if we're honest, we have to stop looking at those outside of Christ and thinking, oh, look how wicked they are. Look how evil. I can't believe those people would loot during the hurricane and all this kind of stuff. And we start setting ourselves up like we're better. Oh, you don't understand the depth of your sin and what Jesus saved you from. Folks, apart from Christ in them, they're doing the best they can. The wickedness of man has been there all along. I'm going to say it again. He doesn't need a second chance. He needs a savior. Go to Luke chapter 6. Look at verses 43 through 45. Jesus says, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit, for figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. 
That's where all of this sin problem is. James even says in, in chapter 1, he says, don't, in verse 13, don't anybody when they're tempted say, God's tempted me, for God does not tempt anyone, he can't be tempted by evil, but each one of us is tempted when by our own evil desire, and from then it gives root to death, or birth to death. So the Pharisees, though, and the teachers of the law had become masters of outwardly appearing to keep the law, and in doing so, they were teaching the Jews to focus on the letter of the law instead of the heart of the law. So... Before I start breaking down what Jesus is saying here about murder and anger, let me just show you a couple of passages where Jesus talked to the Pharisees near the end of his time on the earth uh, and how he described what they were doing in the way they were teaching. Go to Matthew chapter 23, look at verses 1 through 15. Then Jesus, chapter 23, verse 1, Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but they don't practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And no, call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant, and whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted." But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Think about what Jesus was doing here. By the way, you, you start to understand a little bit why they got so mad at him and they wanted to kill him. Here they had been living their whole lives and everybody's saying, wow, look at those guys. Wow, look at those guys. And Jesus comes on the scene and says, hey, um, because God wants you to honor those who are in authority over you, you do what they say. But don't practice how they live because they're phony. And now if you ever knew, the Pharisees not only took the law of God, they would add to it. They, when it says you're not to uh, uh, work on the Sabbath, they would then set how many steps you were allowed to take. There were all these extra rules that they made to fulfill that law. And they made life so hard for the people because the people were taught that my righteousness is how good I do. Whether or not I, if I'm only allowed to take 15 steps, I can't take 16. And they were judging how well they were doing by that. And by the way, sometimes you trip and you lose count. And uh, maybe I got 16 and oh man, now I'm in trouble. And Jesus comes on the scene and he says, oh, by the way, um, they love to be called rabbi. But he says, I don't want you to call anybody rabbi. Or instructor. By the way, that's why I keep saying to you, call me Jim. I don't like being called Reverend. And I know you did it to bug me. I don't like to be called Pastor. I don't call you Sunday school teacher. I don't call you parking lot attendant. I don't call you sound guy. I'm just Jim. And I'm one of you. I'm not closer to God than you are because of my role. It simply goes back to my job is to point you to Jesus. And if you at the end of my teaching are closer to Jesus and not closer to me, that's a good thing. Watch out for those who are in the ministry because they like the fact that their name is on the church sign. Or on the side of the bus. Or on the billboard with a picture of their wife next to them wearing their best clothes. Go to Matthew 23, verses 22 through 28. Go to Matthew 23, verses 22 through 28. Actually, we'll go to verse 23. 23, 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. 
Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, and the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you all also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Boy, he was really getting those Pharisees, wasn't he? I don't know about you or me, but he's getting you and me just as much. Because it's easy to point to those Pharisees. Boy, were they hypocrites. They, they loved to make everybody think everything was going good when inside they were wicked. And don't we do the same thing a lot on Sunday morning? How you doing, brother? Sister, sister, I'm doing good. I'm doing great. Praise the Lord. God's good all the time. All the time, God's good. And we love to put on that outward. We're living, we're just so good. I'll get right to you, Glenn. Remember what he also said? He said, oh, by the way, you Pharisees, you're going to travel all over to try to make a proselyte. And once you make them like you, you've made them twice the child of hell that you are. Why? Because now they've been told they're righteous before God. You at least probably know deep down in your heart, Pharisee, what's really going on. But now these people have been told by the religious person who's supposedly closer to God that they're okay. Oh, and folks, how many people over the years have gone to confession and have been taught to say a couple of things, do a couple of things by the priest, the one whom they weren't supposed to call father, and they were told that you're okay with God now. And Jesus says, boy, the person that told you that is going to be in worse trouble than the person that's been told it, but the person that's been told it, if they believe it's in trouble too. Go ahead, Glenn. Well, you kind of said it. Um... So the Pharisees knew that he was Christ because he's the only one that actually confronted them. And with their conscious, consciousness, they knew, they knew who they were. Oh, they, they knew, knew that they were hypocrites, but he's, this is the first person that's ever come up to him and actually accused them of being that. They knew it. Everybody's without excuse. There's no one that's going to say we didn't know. But yes, they did know. So now Jesus starts with God's word. We're not going to have you turn there, but it's Exodus chapter 20, verse 13 where it says, Thou, you shall not commit murder, shall not murder. But he takes it deeper than just, did I do the act of killing someone? I've broken down what he says into three sections that we're hopefully going to be able to cover in the time we have left. Jesus says, if you're angry with your brother, you're going to be opening yourself to judgment. You're liable to the judgment. He then goes on and says, if you insult your brother, you'll be opening yourself to having man deal with you in judgment. You'll be liable to the council. And if you declare someone a fool, you're opening up yourself to your judgment being hell. That's what he says. All right. Now, a study real quickly in the 10 minutes we have left of what the scripture says about anger will help us understand why he said it like that. And it will lay it out for us. First off, folks, being angry about something in and of itself is not a sin. Go to Hebrews, I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter 4. Look at verses 26 and 27. You're about to find out that the scripture talks a lot more about anger than you probably ever thought. And there are some things that seem confusing, but when we put them all together, it'll hopefully all clarify. In Ephesians chapter 4, look at verses 26 through 27. Scripture says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let me say that to you again. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity for the devil. So is anger in and of itself sin? Good, because God get anger, gets angry and God's never sinned. Yet at the same time, the Bible says in your anger, don't sin and don't let the sun even go down. Don't miss that. Don't let the anger that you have even last a day. Because you'll be giving Satan a foothold. Don't miss that. By the way, I'm tired of the joke, so-and-so sleeping on the couch tonight. Stop it. It's not something for Christians. Because Christians, the scripture says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. The Christian should never say to the spouse, you're sleeping on the couch because I'm upset with you. Because you're letting the sun go down on your anger and you'll wait until tomorrow. The Bible says don't go there. The whole joke of someone sleeping on the couch ain't funny, according to the word of God. So here the Bible says, be angry, but in your anger, don't sin. And then it says, don't let the sun go down. Don't hold on to your anger more than 24 hours. 
Because otherwise you'll be giving Satan a foothold. The Bible is very clear that God has anger. But you know the Bible says that God, even though he has anger, is slow to anger. Go to Numbers chapter 14. Numbers chapter 14, verse 18. Numbers 14, verse 18, the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation. So here we see that God is slow to anger. So anger in and of itself is not a sin. That's why we too, the Bible says, should be slow to anger and not fly off the handle or have a short fuse. Some of you say, well, I've just got a short fuse. That's nothing to be proud of. The Bible says that's sin. I've actually taught my daughters, and I'm glad they're here again. I want to remind them here, and it's on tape. <laughs> Boy, I just dated myself by saying tape, didn't I? <laughs> I've warned them whenever you date somebody, if he's got a temper, end it right now. You don't want to ever be married to someone with a fuse like that. You want to see why? I'm going to show you from the scriptures why. Go to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. Look at verses 19 and 20. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Why? For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. You might even think you are righteously angry. <laughs> you don't even know what that looks like. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, you better be slow to anger. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 29 puts it real well as well. Proverbs 14, verse 29. Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding. But he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. Increases foolishness. That helps you any. Proverbs 14, verse 29, whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but whoever has a hasty temper exalts folly. We also shouldn't deal with our anger in our own, quote unquote, wisdom or hold on to it, because when we do, we make ourselves judge over our brother, like we've already talked about, Bill. And only God can judge righteously. That's why we're not to declare someone a fool. Now, we can say that God has said that the fool, the person that says there's no God is a fool because he's the righteous judge and he can make that, that statement. But for us to say, you are a fool, we don't know where that person is. Only God does. So keep yourself from putting yourself in the place of God when it comes to people. We also shouldn't deal with our anger, like I said, in our own wisdom. This is why the scripture also teaches us. Are you ready for this? It said, be angry, but don't sin. And it says, don't let the sun go down on your anger, or you'll give Satan a foothold. And that's why it also says, you need to even be slow to getting angry. Because if you get angry, you're right, you're, your anger is not going to produce any righteousness. And now the scripture is going to take us even further where he's going to say, get rid of anger altogether. Look at what it says in Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 10. Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 10. It says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness. By the way, where's all this stuff coming from? From our heart. It's coming from within us, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. What's the first thing it tells us to put away? Anger. Isn't that interesting? God's gone from saying, in your anger, don't sin. And be slow to anger. Actually, he says, I'd rather you not be angry at all. Put it away. Wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Don't lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Go over to um, 1 Timothy chapter 2 real quick. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Look at verse 8. 1 Timothy 2, verse 8. 
Paul says, I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without what? Without anger or quarreling. Hope you hear this. The Bible says if you're going to be angry, don't sin. Oh, but don't think that that means, well, the Bible says in your anger, don't sin. So I, I can be angry. No, no, no. The Bible says to be slow to anger. And then on top of that, if you have anger, it should be only with you for a brief period of time. And also on top of that, you're to put it away. How do we put it away? When it happens, we say, Lord, that's not my call. That's your call. That's not my issue. That's your issue. That's not something I'm supposed to fix. That's something you're supposed to fix. And you put it away by giving it to the Lord, who is able to judge all situations righteously because he knows the whole story. And that's how you'll eventually get rid of your anger. You're slow, you hand it to the Lord, and it goes away. That's why Jesus goes on to say that if we have any lingering issues with anyone, we need to stop thinking everything's okay between us and God. That's why he says, leave your gift at the altar. Don't think your worship is being accepted because he knows your heart. He knows whether or not you've got some resentment with somebody. I'm just going to go down a road real quick in the time that we have tonight. Some of you have been done wrong, and some of you have been done wrong financially. Some of you have been hurt financially. Someone's cheated you. Someone's taken what you thought was yours. Someone uh, deceived you in a business transaction. Someone owes you money. Some of you are angry, and you're not going to ever put it on because, you know, everything's good and God's good all the time. And hey, brother, hey, sister, how you doing? I'm doing great. And we don't acknowledge what's really going on, but God knows your heart. Oh, I haven't killed anybody, but you thought about it. You thought about it. Let me read to you a couple of passages real quickly. Go to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. I know what time it is. I don't care tonight. <laughs> Hebrews 13. I'm not going to go too, too long. Hebrews 13. Look at verses 5 and 6. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For God has said... I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The context is money. The context is money. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, just write it down for the sake of time, verses 7 and 8. Paul's dealing with the fact that these Christians were suing each other in the church. And he says, why not be wronged? Why do you feel like you have to take your brother to court? Jesus even said in the passage, if you've got a brother who's got a problem with you, you go settle it with him ahead of time. You go reconcile. Romans chapter 12, write this down and go look at it. Verses 14 through 21. Romans 12, 14 through 21 talks about how vengeance is the Lord's. We're to be seeking reconciliation as far as it lies with you. Seek to be at peace with everyone. But what about what, about what they owe me? Oh, yeah, you've been letting that anger go to bed with you for a long time, haven't you? You've let the sun go down on your anger, and now Satan's got a foothold, and you're having a hard time letting it go. You think you're worshiping God on Sunday, but you're not. Oh, by the way, you don't just worship God on Sunday, I hope. The Bible says that we're to be seeking reconciliation. You know why? Because the God who had every right to be angry with you and with me, sent his son to die for us in our place while we were his enemy, while we were his we're sinners. And he extended grace to us and he was slow to anger. Aren't you glad God was slow to anger with you? Then why do you put yourself in the place of God and have already set yourself as the judge over this person that's cheated you? Are you reconciled to God? That's a real good question. You see, first we need to be reconciled to God through faith in His Son's provision for our sin. Then we can reconcile with fellow man. I love how in Psalm 51, David cries out because of his sin with Bathsheba, and he says, I've sinned against you. And wash me clean. and Renew a right spirit within me. And then after he begs for God's forgiveness, he says, then I'll teach transgressors your ways. I'm not going to get right with you by going and doing things for you, God. What you're looking for is not sacrifice or else I would give it. What you accept is a broken spirit and a contrite heart. That you won't despise. David says, I want to be right with you. Cleanse me. 
Thank you for the fact that you're not angry and you've been slow to anger. And I want to receive that and help me to splash it on the people around me, even if they've done me wrong, because that's how I was towards you and you gave me grace. A little bit deeper than thou shall not murder, don't you think? Oh, but wait till next week. I love you. We'll see you then.